الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته My respected elders, brothers in Islam One of the overlooked miracles in the Quran Is the fact that the Quran Kareem was revealed You know, piece by piece so sometimes someone will ask a question, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reveal the answer. And then another time there'll be a problem, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell the Muslims what to do. And then Jibreel alayhi salam now tells Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa put this verse, these verses here, put those verses there. And now we have the surahs of the Quran arranged in the way that we are reciting them today. But when we are reciting them, we can't even tell that, you know, this was revealed at one time, this was revealed ten years later. It fits like a perfect story. In fact, there's amazing symmetry and patterns within the surahs of the Qur'an, within some verses of the Qur'an. One of those surahs is Surah Baqarah. If you look at Surah Baqarah, for example, it can be divided into nine different sections. And the first section will correspond with the last one, the second one with the second last one, the third one with the third last one, and so forth. So amazing thing about that, that despite the fact that many parts were revealed, maybe ten years uh, difference between the two parts yet there's this complete correspondence and when we look at the third part and the third last part we find that the third part is referring to the laws that were revealed to Bani Israel the fact that the children of Israel the Bani Israel they were not able to keep the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when you look at the third last part it speaks about the laws that were revealed to the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa now telling us that that came and it went but now it's our turn as an ummah to keep the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you look at the middle of Surah Baqarah, the exact center, the middle verse, it says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا That the middle verse of Surah Baqarah, which is divided in these, into these different sections, says that we have made you literally translated into a middle ummah. That's the middle verse of Surah Baqarah. And the Mufassirin explain that by middle, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means is, the best and the choicest. So for example, at that time, if there was an empire, they'll put the capital of the empire in the center because all of the other lands are susceptible to attack, but the center will always be the strongest, will always be the most protected. And so we find that the message of Nabi Muhammad is protected unlike any other message of the previous Anbiya. So for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he's going to protect the Qur'an. He takes it upon himself to protect the Qur'an. Whereas we see that the previous scriptures, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That the scholars of that time, they were given the duty to protect the, their scriptures, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he will protect the Qur'an. But another factor when it comes to preservation of the deen, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed us that the core primary purpose of our existence here on earth is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Also, لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا So we can be good to other people, we can do good actions, righteous deeds. But beyond that, in order for the good to prosper, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses that doesn't only deal with our worship, it doesn't only deal with the way we treat our family or the people around us, it deals with economics, 
It deals with how to run a government. It deals with how to enact social justice. It deals with warfare. It deals with military. It deals with all of these things. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has explained to us that the nature of mankind is such that there will always be this tussle between haqq and batil. That batil and falsehood is never ever going to allow haqq to remain as it is without interfering with it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا يَزَالُونَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ حَتَّى يَرُدُّوكُمْ عَنْ دِينِكُمْ إِسْتَطَاعُوا Talking about the mushrikeen of Makkah, they're going to continue fighting you until they take you away from your deen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَن تَرْضَ عَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ وَلَن نَصَارَ حَتَّى تَتَّبِعَ مِلَّتَهُمْ The Christians and the Jews are not going to be happy until you're following their way of life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَوْلَا دَفْعُ اللَّهِ النَّاسَ بَعْضَهُمْ بِبَعْضِ لَفَسَدَتِ الْأَرْضِ If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not make use of certain groups of people, meaning the believers, to fight those who are non-believers, then there will be corruption and chaos on the earth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining to us that in order for the haqq to remain, to be sustained, to function in its optimal capacity, the Muslims have to be a nation that rule and that have laws from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that govern every single facet of your existence. So we find example when the Quran is revealed to Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa Just as it contains verses which tell us about salah and zakah and fasting, it tells us, and it informs us of how we should conduct our warfare. Just as it has verses about how we should be good to one another, it tells us about how an Islamic economy should function. So this is the perfection and the preservation of the religion of Islam, that these laws encompass every single facet of your existence. And this was the Islam that was preserved in the Quran, that was preserved in the Sunnah. This was the Islam that when the Muslims went all over the world conquering, this was the Islam that spread. The Islam that really told the rulers how to rule, told the businessmen how to do business, and told the people, every single person, how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this Islam that spread together with having laws that governed every single aspect of human existence, it also had two other qualities. Number one, it had the quality of expansionism. That wherever Muslims went, then Islam spread as a necessary corollary. There was no other way around it. If Muslims went there, sometimes it was through an army, sometimes it was through without an army. If you look at North, uh, North Africa, then Muslim armies went there. If you look at Indonesia, Malaysia, Nigeria, no Muslim armies went there. But whenever Muslims, wherever Muslims went, Islam spread. It's, a, it's an inherent quality of Islam that it spreads wherever it goes. Another quality of the Islam that spread throughout the world Number one was expansionism. Number two was it had a unifying quality about it. So previously in Makkah al-Mukarramah, the unifying quality was based on tribalism. If you're from my tribe, then I'll protect you. But when Islam came, it did away with all of that. And now the unifying factor was based on the fact that the person next to me says, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, so now he's my brother in Islam. Now I will do everything for him. And yes, in today's time, in spirit and in speech, we see this, we feel it. But at the time of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, think about how it was practically applied. That the muhajireen of Makkah, they had to leave everything that they had, they had to go to Medina Munawwara. Because of this brotherhood, the people in Medina Munawwara gave up half of their belongings at some, in some cases for the muhajireen. Imagine that. That, so, that you see your Muslim brother, he's in trouble, you feel for him. But not only that, you give him half of your belongings. That because of this quality of, uni, of this unifying aspect of Islam in the time of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a Muslim knows that at any time he could be called up to protect the city of Medina Munawwara. A Muslim knows that at any time Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam could call on him to see to some guests. That this quality of brotherhood and ukhuwa and being an ummah, it was amazing, it was beautiful, but it had lots of responsibilities also. 
The Muslims knew that they couldn't sleep at ease if they, someone in their vicinity didn't have food, didn't have a place to stay. So understand that this Islam that spread throughout the world, number one, it had laws that governed every single aspect of human existence. Number two, it was expansionist in nature. Number three, it had a unifying quality that overrode every other unifying quality that was possible at the time. And so we find that when Islam spread to Spain, or Islam spread to Uzbekistan in the east, then this was the Islam that spread. And this was the Islam that really fulfilled the verse where we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, akmaltu dinakum. That perfect deen is being practiced in all of these lands by the Sahaba radiallahu anhu and those after them. And the effects of this, sometimes we assume that if this happened and these laws were practiced, then you would find that the world would be an amazing place, there would be no injustice. But the reality is, historically, it's proven that this was the case. In every place where the Muslims went and forced the proper Sharia in its full form, you found justice there. You found that those believers, the Muslims who wanted to worship Allah, they were able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they wanted to without interference. And so I'm just going to take two examples in history, or maybe three, which will help us to understand just what an impact the Sharia had when it was really, really applied. So anyone who studied economics, they would have heard of someone called Adam Smith. He's known as the founder of the free market system. Although Muslim scholars spoke about it before him, like Imam Ghazali and Ibn Khaldun, but people refer to Adam Smith as the founder of the free market system. He says that the first time in human history where people saw such economic stability that allowed for the true flourishing of humankind was in the era of the four khulafa. That a non-Muslim is telling you this. That he understands that when the full sharia was practiced, that there was such economic stability, such, such serenity, such social justice, it was never ever seen before. If you want to take another example to show you just how the Muslims dominated the entire world, perhaps this example will sit a bit closer to home. The example of Christopher Columbus, people learned that, you know, he went to the Americas and he was seeking India, etc. But historians have known for some time now that the real reason, from his letters you can judge this, why he went out, why he went looking for a different empire, was that the domination of the Ottoman Khilafah, the way it was imposing upon Europe, the way it was looking like it was about to take over Europe, was such that it spurred Christopher Columbus and other explorers around him to go looking for a Mongol, a, a mythical Mongol emperor who was going to help them. So I'm just using these two examples to show you how Islam dominated the world when every single aspect of the Sharia was being applied. Now we know in the 1700s, the 1800s, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's plan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best why it happened, how it happened, the reasons for why it happened. But the Muslim empire, the different Muslim empires, they experienced a decline. The colonial forces came to these Muslim lands, they conquered these Muslim lands. And when they arrived at the Muslim shores, again, just to remind ourselves, they found Muslims who were practicing Islam not only on an individual level, but on a societal level, on a governmental level, on an economic level, in every aspect. They found this Islam. But when they came to these Muslim lands, we can just take two examples, when the French went to Egypt, and when the English went to India, then they came to these lands and they didn't tell the Muslims, you must become murtad, you must become an apostate, you must leave Islam. They didn't tell them that. They told them, no, you can carry on practicing your Islam. But you must practice your Islam in your house. You must practice your Islam in the masjid. You must practice your Islam in the private quarters. 
But that Islam that was ruling and governing, that was telling you what to do in the public sector, then that Islam, we're going to take care of that now. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So now in these lands, Islam now was chopped in half, was compartmentalized. And only those aspects which, which dealt with the individual life were still being practiced. The ulama did an amazing job in preserving the, 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 this deen despite all of this. But the aspects of Islam that had to do with warfare, that had to do with governance, that had to do with economics, these were all now subsumed and taken over by the colonial forces. And because of that, because of 100, 200, maybe some cases 300 years of Muslims living without this aspect of Sharia in their life, we find that we can see the consequences of that in the way we ourselves view Islam. So number one consequence that we can see of that is that we as Muslims sometimes, we're comfortable with living under a non-Muslim law. So it doesn't even strike us that, you know what, we are supposed to be ruling and not the other way around. It doesn't even strike us that that is supposed to be the case. So on the one hand, we'll say, Islam has the solutions for everything. In the Quran and Hadith, there's the solutions to all of the problems. But then on the other hand, we'll say, let the government take care of it. Let the non-Muslims take care of it. Let them take care of the problems that the Quran and Hadith has a solution for. So you can see the consequence of so many centuries of colonial rule on the way we view in Islam. The second consequence you can see of this is that in some ways we develop an inferiority complex. So for example, just to take a random example, the colonial powers will say that jihad is something that's wrong, it's abhorrent and this and that. So you get Muslims who say, no, jihad just means you're struggling against yourself, spiritual jihad, it's billah. they say things like this. But at the same time, those same countries have armies in so many different other countries, killing men, women and children, but we still want to find it in ourselves to appease their morality. Whereas we don't have anything to apologize for. The Quran and Hadith and the laws that are found therein, whether it's of jihad, whether it's of gender roles, whether it's of everything is completely perfect, instead of trying to defend it and change it, we should be trying to implement it. Another way you see this being enacted is that in the time of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the kuffar of Makkah, they were the dominant force at the time, in the days of Makkah al-Mukarramah, they were so scared that the, the, uh, the, the people of Arabia were going to come for the Hajj, and they were going to hear the Qur'an, and they were going to get influence, and they were going to follow Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The kuffar of Makkah were so scared of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala records their speech in Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir, and how... Uh, I think it was Walid bin Mughira, is plotting and planning how are we going to save the people from getting influenced by Islam. But look at our condition today, that despite the fact that we know the haq, we are scared of the other ideologies. We feel like if we come into contact with them, they will influence us. But the reality is it should be, they should be scared that if they come into contact with us, they will be influenced by us. If you look at a third way in which the way we view Islam has been affected by two or three centuries of colonial rule, it's the way we view the sunnah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa That when I, if I tell any one of you, follow the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa only certain things will come to your mind. And those things are very, very important. But many other sunnahs, let alone acting on it, we don't even consider it to be a sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa So we've compartmentalized the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa That a great sunnah, perhaps the greatest sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa was his striving to spread Islam, to give da'wah to every non-Muslim who was around him. Whether it was in Makkah al-Mukarramah, whether it was in Medina Munawwara, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa did this successfully in a span of 23 years. He managed to allow the message of Islam to reach most of the known world. 
What a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But we don't necessarily see the sunnah around us today. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is uniting all of the Muslims together behind a central force so that all of our efforts come together and are concentrated. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to create your own economy. That when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to Medina Munawwara, he found there were four marketplaces. And two of the marketplaces were ruled by the mushrikeen, two were run by the Jews. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam looks at these marketplaces, he can see inequality, he can see high barriers to entry. So what does Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam do? He creates his own marketplace for the Muslims to go there. This is a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's an ingenious sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But sometimes it doesn't even come to our mind. A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was to make Muslims independent from any other forces who they couldn't trust. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had the Jews translating his letters, but he couldn't trust them, so he told Zayd bin Thabit radiallahu anhu, you learn the language and you do it, we don't have to rely on any other nation. It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to ensure that the empire that you are living within has the highest level of military equipment. When Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Sahaba radiallahu anhu had besieged Taif, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent two Sahaba radiallahu anhu to Syria to learn siege making equipment, to learn these tactics and to bring it back to the Muslims. It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to ensure that everyone in the population know, knows how to defend themselves with the weaponry of the time. It's a sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And there's so, so many other sunnahs of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that encompass every single aspect of our lives. But because for whatever reasons, because of the way we've been living, sometimes we only focus on certain sunnahs to the exclusion of other sunnahs. Sometimes we only focus on those things that have to do with the individual life and not of those things that have to do with the community as a whole. But the worst consequence of colonial rule, of Muslims being taken out of power, of many of these sunnahs that I just listed not being practiced upon, the worst consequence of all of this year, or one of the worst consequences of, of this year, is that we see and we have been seeing, and for a long time this has been the care of our brothers and sisters in Islam, and we have been unable to do anything about it. And this is happening now in Gaza. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help the people of Gaza, to help the Mujahideen. But it will be a disservice for us to, to act as though this is a unique occurrence. It happened in Bosnia, it happened in Afghanistan, it happened in Iraq, it happened in Algeria, it happened in India, ever since these sunnahs of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were taken out, ever since the Muslims were not ruling and therefore necessarily other forces were ruling, ever since this happened, we've been witnessing the massacre of Muslims and we've been helpless to do anything about it. So just as now we need to do everything in our power to help our brothers and sisters, whether it be dua, rectifying ourselves, sending aid, raising awareness, but it's like the example of a person who has a hole in his roof. Whenever there's torrential rains, his house floods. So he needs to work on, uh, if, his if the rain has come now, he needs to work on getting the water out. But he also needs to work on fixing that hole in the roof. He needs to work on ensuring that something like this doesn't happen in the future. And the only way this is going to happen is if you go back to the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And now I'm talking about the entire holistic sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If you read the seerah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it can be read as an instruction manual for how to take a group of Muslims living in a non-Muslim majority country and take them to an empire that's ruling the entire world. That's a step-by-step -step manual of the sunnah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And what was the first step or one of the first steps in that manual 
manual that Nabi Wasallam left for us. One of the first steps was da'wah. That you're living in a land that's completely non-Muslim or majority non-Muslim, give da'wah to the person next to you. Ensure that Islam spreads. If you look at it, we as Muslims, alhamdulillah, we have many structures here in Durban, many structures in South Africa. But still we only account for 2% of the population is Muslim. And yet everything is at our disposal. The government allows us to proselytize. We have people here in this country whose fitrah, believe me, is salim, they're ready to accept Islam. We have abundant resources. The only thing that's stopping us as Muslims in this country from turning South Africa into a Muslim country in the next 20 or 30 years, the only thing really that's stopping us is ourselves. If you just take an example, I'm going to end off on this, when a lion attacks a group of wildebeest, and it goes for one of them, and there's 50 of them there, if they just got together and said, we're going to finish this lion up, it'll stand no chance. But because their own beliefs, they have self-limiting beliefs, self-hindering beliefs, they're unable to do that. So similarly, here in South Africa, if we get together, and we say that, you know what, we're going to create ulama that can speak all of the different indigenous languages. We're going to focus on place after place after place. We're going to do da'wah. Allah knows best, but nothing will stop us from making South Africa a Muslim country in the next 20 or 30 years. But we have to try and the one thing that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam did that was amazing and unparalleled, one of the things, was that he changed the mindset of the Muslims. So when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam began preaching Islam to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they were a group of Arabs who were living in the desert. There were many Muslim, there were many other empires in the world who were much stronger than them outwardly. And if anyone had told them that, you know, one day you are going to dominate all of those empires, they would have thought that it's impossible. But after Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam explained to them Islam, the power of Islam, the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every single one of those Sahaba, even though they hadn't done it yet, they were still restricted to Medina Munawara. They knew that in 20 years we're going to conquer the world. And so what Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa did was, he changed the mindset of the Muslims, such that they saw something which they once thought was impossible, they saw it to be inevitable. And that's what we need to understand here, that as impossible as something might seem, if Muslims get together, if they unite, if they unify their efforts, then the occurrence of this, whether it be the Islamicization of South Africa, whether it be the destruction of the Zionist entity, this is inevitable. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for tawfiq to help our brothers and sisters in Palestine, to give us the tawfiq now to spread Islam to whoever we can. But before that even, to understand that Islam is supposed to be ruled, it's not supposed to be ruled. Muslims are supposed to be the rulers. To understand this, that we have this duty on us, that one day, somehow, slowly but surely, we must inch our way forwards to making sure that Islam becomes dominant, inshaAllah.